Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. Great Abaco Island is still beautiful, but it is scarred. Scarred from the seemingly endless hours of winds and water from Hurricane Dorian in September. Its economy is quiet. Quieted by the worst storm spawned by the warm Atlantic waters to hit the Bahamas. And its residents are few. Thousands forced out of their homes because they have no homes any longer. Healing from a hurricane, especially one as strong and devastating as Dorian, will be measured in years, not weeks or months. Four months later, I think the Bahamas is doing a halfway decent job. But we can always improve where we are, and that's what the authority intends to do. That's Catherine Smith. She's the managing director of the Disaster Reconstruction Authority, a new agency the Bahamian government created late last year to help clean up and rebuild disaster areas. We spoke with Smith as we toured parts of Great Abaco Island earlier this month on board a bus. The island was scoured by Hurricane Dorian in September. The storm stalled over Abaco and Grand Bahama to the west, spinning its Category 5 winds and sweeping walls of water over the land. Four months later on Abaco, countless tons of debris remain, power has not been fully restored, and life is limping along. One of the big priorities is this debris cleanup in Abaco. It's really a big problem. Um, and it's only a problem because of the scale of the, the hurricane and the devastation and damage that it did in Abaco. Also on today's program, another story of money and the price of life in South Florida. David and Nancy Fry met in high school in Weston. They graduated from college, started their careers, got married, and started a family. But keeping up with the cost of life has been challenging. I'm the one that handles the bills every month, so then seeing the expenses not lining up with the uh, income and just seeing that just exponentially grow and just seeing that there was no way we were ever going to get on top of it. Their story is coming up later on. If you'd like to share your story of money and the price of life here, email us. Sunshine Economy at WLRNnews.org. That's Sunshine Economy at WLRNnews.org. On the northern stretch of Abaco is Cooperstown. Hermione Renee's house is on enough of a hill there that it escaped the storm surge, but it needs a new roof. Cooperstown was spared the worst from Dorian. Still, the storm took away Renee's job. She was working at a restaurant in Marsh Harbor. That's where her 21-year-old daughter Lucy was living and working before the storm took away both her home and job. The storm also took their car, and the two were looking for a ride from Cooperstown to Marsh Harbor, about a 45-minute drive, when we met them. Is your future here, No, Lucy? No. No. I had plans already, but the hurricane stopped a lot of things. Right across the road from where Lucy and her mom were hoping to catch a ride is the high school where Lucy graduated. It's in the early stages of being repaired with the help of the Miami-based nonprofit Global Empowerment Mission. So your past is here. Yes, but I don't plan my future here. Like, I just, it's great. The Bahamas is great. Before the storm, Abco was great. Like, it's pretty. Yeah, after they rebuild and stuff, I'll be back. Kay Smith and the Disaster Reconstruction Authority are counting on that sentiment for the thousands of people displaced because of the storm, those whose jobs disappeared, whose homes were damaged or destroyed, whose lives have been upended because of Hurricane Dorian. 
Very early signs of the rebuilding effort can be seen at the Cooperstown Primary School. It's a small collection of concrete block buildings just yards from the Atlantic Ocean. The walls withstood the floodwaters, but not much else. A.J. Cooper is the contractor rebuilding the school he and his father attended. Initially, when we first start off, we were working 12-hour days. We would start at 6 in the morning, as soon as the sun come up to 6 in the evening. But now, we kind of slow down a little bit because we like now we're waiting on the remainder of the material. And there really isn't a much, that much to do right now. But as soon as the material come back, come, comes on island, we're going to pick back up with work schedules. Seven days a week, 12 hours, 12 hour days. He hopes to have students and teachers back in the classrooms in March. The high school is a short distance away, but up a small hill. That higher elevation requires pumps and power, two things it still needs to get fresh water. Getting schools reopened is an important magnet to help bring people back and an important economic driver for local jobs and paychecks. For now, the Reconstruction Authority's focus primarily is on cleaning up the northern Bahamas, as Catherine Smith told us back on the bus. The reality is we are not going to apologize for making sure we do whatever we can to move the debris removal quicker in Abaco and in Grand Bahama. So what kind of timeline would the authority like to have for the debris? Well, I think within the next three months, I think we want to say that we can see appreciable change in the way places like Marsh Harbor looks or Sweetings Key or areas still left uh, undone in Grand Bahama. Touring Abaco, debris has been cleared from the roads, pushed aside and piled up, but not necessarily picked up. There has been frustration with the speed at which government contractors have removed the debris. Catherine Smith, who heads up that reconstruction agency, admitted they need to be more aggressive. Why hasn't the cleanup been more aggressive here four months after? Putting um, aside the scale of the cleanup, which is yeah, tremendous. I mean, the scale of the cleanup is tremendous. That's a big deal. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, when you get hit with a hurricane, and I don't care who you are, whether you're the you know, the prime minister of the country or whether you're the minister of finance or, you know, the reality is, is nobody knew this was coming. Nobody had ever experienced this before. Um, and so at, for the first crack at it, you know, as a country, I think uh, there was a lot of shock at, initially. Um, maybe decisions were slow in making because you had to get over the initial shock of what you had to deal with. I mean, we all know that that's the reality. Um, so there are many reasons, you know, it may have started off slow, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think the main thing that the government did was they decided that in order to not have to deal with government bureaucracy, they needed to uh, uh, implement uh, a new ministry with a new authority that is quite an autonomous body. No excuses. There are no excuses. And so that's why I tell you, we're not going to apologize for making the decisions that we need to make in the best interest of the country. Some of those immediate decisions also include housing for residents who remained on the islands, those who left and want to come back, and for people who will be needed for the rebuilding work ahead. We have temporary housing that's being uh, constructed now for the residents in Abaco. Um, there are 250 domes um, that will be used in the Abaco area. Um, there are just about, I think, 40 to 60 that may be in the com completion stage of erection. 
I'm inside now one of those domes that Kay Smith spoke about as they want to build dozens of these for temporary housing. They are domes, um, half circles, essentially, uh, that have one doorway and uh, two windows. You can hear the echo. It's a wood floor like you'd have on an outdoor patio, an outdoor deck right now. And they're just separate panels of a, kind of a fiberglass material that are put together with bolts and washers. We're in an area south of Marsh Harbor in this area called Spring City. At the end of the day, we have to make the decisions that we have to make to do this work. It's hard. Those are difficult decisions when it comes to the types of buildings right. the government and the authority wants built right. versus what people communities want. and people want and can afford sometimes. Yeah. But when you look at the assessments that have been done on homes, uh, and numbers don't lie generally, but <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, in Grand Bahama, for example, the majority of the homes that were affected in the hurricanes, according to our data, incurred minimal damage. You cannot expect those persons to knock their homes down and tell them, look, let's build back better and let's build with a level of resiliency. I think you can talk to the people whose homes were completely destroyed and encourage them to look at what building better looks like. Encourage or require? Well, that's a, that's a different story. It's a story that the Bahamian government already has made some decisions, including banning rebuilding in Abaco's shanty towns. The government was in the process of getting rid of the mostly immigrant neighborhoods before Dorian destroyed them. So still to come, the familiar economic tensions over immigrants exposed by Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. When I was in Abaco, I see the future. I see something that, you know, was going real for me. Our mandate is always to make sure that Bahamians are given the first opportunity to work and only after Bahamians have been exhausted, then we need to look at other, other labor. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. You can follow along on Twitter, at WLRN is our handle. Also look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and of course podcasts of this program by searching Sunshine Economy on your podcast platform. Now coming up later on in this program, financial statements, stories of money and the price of life in South Florida. This week's story will come from David and Nancy Fry. They're in their 30s with two young kids living in Broward County. Insurance is still in excess of 25% of what we pay. It's, it's still the biggest factor in our family expenses. I still would like to see us doing better. I mean, I going paycheck to paycheck is not a way to live. And I'm struggling now because I've been out of the workforce other than my part-time jobs that I've held here and there. I'm struggling now to find employment. Their story is coming up later on in this program. You can see and hear all of our previous financial statement stories by going to wlrn.org slash financial dash statements. That's wlrn.org slash financial dash statements. 
And if you'd like to share your story of money and the price of life here in South Florida, please email us, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. That's sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. In Nassau, Bahamas, among a group of buildings that includes a stadium and swimming center, is a 2,500-seat gymnasium. Since September, it has served as a shelter for victims of Hurricane Dorian. Two weeks after the storm, more than 1,300 people were living at the gym and in nearby tents. That has fallen to fewer than 400. This includes Haitian immigrants who lived in neighborhoods on Great Abaco Island that no longer exist. This is Jean-Louis Shilton. He survived Dorian on Abaco in Marsh Harbor, but he's undocumented. He says when he was in Abaco, it was good and it could be good for his future. But he doesn't see a future staying at the shelter in the gym. He says if he could get around and get a job, it would be good for him. But he worries that if he leaves the shelter, immigration authorities may arrest him. The Bahamas has been criticized by international immigration groups for its treatment of undocumented Haitian immigrants affected by the storm. Salafet Wilson said he left Haiti because of the bad economy and made it to Abaco by boat, where he worked construction before Dorian. He was injured in the storm and had been in Nassau since days after the hurricane leveled his neighborhood. He says he'd like to return to Abaco, but there's no access. Things have gotten complicated, he says. There's no way to make a life there. Even if he went and said he's willing to live under the radar, there's no way to hide now. Felton Bovier would also like to return to Abaco. He's originally from Cape Haitian. He says he's undocumented and worked part-time as a day laborer in Abaco, and he would like to return. My future and my family's future, he asks. If I was working, I could help them. If I was working somewhere, I'd have the means to send some money for them. If I had the possibility to work, I would have the means to bring them here. If I had work, he says, but I don't have that possibility, I can't do anything for them. Whatever their future, it won't include their old neighborhoods. The Haitian settlements in Marsh Harbor that were destroyed by Hurricane Dorian, the mud and pigeon peas, were mostly cleared of the debris when we visited earlier this month. The areas were fenced off with razor wire on top. Smaller piles of rubble were gathered around dumpsters and dump trucks across the land. The treatment of these areas and immigrants have been contentious for some time. Dorian's destruction has brought forth the familiar tension on the islands. We asked the head of the new Bahamian Disaster Reconstruction Authority, Catherine Smith, about it earlier this month while touring Great Abaco by bus. You know, I think people need not to get confused with immigration, immigrants, and the Bahamas. Because the reality is I cannot go to the United States of America uh, without having the proper visas or, you know, resident cards or citizenship if I wanted to just live there. And so while we all respect that immigrants are having a difficult time. They are obviously coming from countries um, that do not provide them with safe and a healthy way to live. Um, at the end of the day, we have to respect the laws of the country. Many of those immigrants obviously coming from Haiti into Abaco. And it's interesting how those neighborhoods have become this conversation around immigration in the Bahamas. and it comes into your office in a way because you are 
charged with the authority to reconstruct, to rebuild. Right. Uh, does the future of Abaco include those communities, do you think? Well, I think, I think what we have to do um, as an authority and also uh, with the residents um, in Marsh Harbor and those areas that were affected greatly, is there has to be a conversation about a new town planning for Abaco. Um, a lot of people have been talking about it, but you know, the, the authority has to proceed uh, with the working help and contribution and collaboration of the residents of Abaco. The return of those residents is an immigration question, certainly. Which residents? The residents of the mud and Pigeon Pea and those, those well, Haitians. I don't even know where the residents are. Like everybody else, whether you're a Bahamian or you're an immigrant, a lot of people have left the community and gone to seek housing elsewhere. And some are still in government shelters yes, in the Bahamas. Are, yeah. But the, the, the thing is, is we should not be focused on whether we have immigrant housing or we have Bahamian housing. That, that, that really shouldn't be our discussion. Our discussion should be, how do we rebuild the community and how does everybody fit into that rebuilding? So we're not, you know, we're not building a separate Abaco. We're not building, you know, two divisions. We're building a community. Yeah. And I guess the question then comes, circles back around those previous communities, pre-Dorian communities, are, are they part of that discussion still? Well, I think the, 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 the right answer is that we are building a community and we have to rebuild a community, whether, whether it's in Grand Bahama, whether it's in Abaco, it's for the people who, who live in the community. Um, now, if you're asking me an immigration question, whether or not immigrants who have come to the Bahamas can no longer take a part, be a part of that community, well, that's an immigration matter. You know, that's an immigration matter. Um, and, and I don't think we should, we should be speaking about the rebuilding of our communities um, on the back end of an immigration matter. Let it's me, not the same thing. Let me put the labor supply question into this, because as you know, there's been a debate about the availability of labor in order to get the rebuilding effort off the ground here in Abaco and in Grand Bahama. How do you see the availability of reconstruction labor? Well, first of all, I think we have to have a call to action of labor that exists outside of Abaco and in Grand Bahama. But we have a, a lot of talented contractors and laborers that live in all of the islands of the Bahamas. Um, so I, I can't say that, you know, we have a labor, we may have a shortage, obviously, of available labor in Abaco, simply because the destruction is so great and there's so much work to be done. But I believe that we can find labor outside of Abaco in the other family islands. Our mandate is always to make sure that Bahamians are given the first opportunity to work, and only after Bahamians have been exhausted, then we need to look at other, other labor. Is that where the labor and the reconstruction intersects with immigration policy? Well, yeah, it would be because you know once we've exhausted labor, and then you know there are a lot of private companies, homeowners that may want to bring in labor. Um, then we go through the normal process of immigration. You fill out a work permit, you get the, you have your passport, you have your photographs, you determine what it is you're gonna be doing, who you're working for. Um, so that's just a normal process of immigration policies that exist everywhere else in the world. Speaking with Catherine Smith, the managing director of the Disaster Reconstruction Authority of the Bahamas, while touring Great Abaco Island earlier this month. Still to come, rebuilding the Bahamas through South Florida. The biggest job in this country right now that everybody is doing is how do we uh, sustain our economy, grow the economy, build back better and rebuild this country.
um, Freeport, all that, all that building materials going to Freeport. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Later on in this program, we'll have a new story of money and the price of life in South Florida. David and Nancy Fry grew up in Weston, started dating in high school, and now live in Plantation, raising their two young kids. David's a lawyer who left a government job to earn more money with a private practice. Nancy used to work in the arts industry. I know from our experience, yeah, my parents... We're doing eons better than we are at this stage. We, I started having kids at the same age my mother did, and I can see the type of homes that they had that my mom was able to stay home as a stay-at-home mom. Their story is still to come in this program. You can hear previous Sunshine Economy financial statement programs and podcasts by searching Sunshine Economy on your podcast platform. You can find all of the stories at wlrn.org slash financial dash statements. That's wlrn.org slash financial dash statements. And if you'd like to share your story of money and the price of life with us, you can email sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. Our email address, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. Four and a half months after Hurricane Dorian laid waste to parts of the northern Bahamas, the Bahamian government invited deep-pocketed people and nonprofits to Nassau. The United Nations organized the conference to raise money to help rebuild parts of Grand Bahama and the Abaco Islands devastated by the storm. The government's official death toll in late November stood at 70 people, though it expects that to change. More than 275 people remain missing. The damage is estimated at $3.4 billion. The Bahamian finance minister told Bloomberg this month that the government expects to borrow half a billion dollars to begin paying for the rebuilding efforts. The international donor conference earlier this month ended with $1.5 billion in pledges. For the Bahamas to recover, it needs a healthy and growing tourism industry. Tourism is about half of the country's economy, and about one in every five tourism dollars in the Bahamas comes from Grand Bahamas and the Abaco Islands, where Dorian hit the hardest. Catherine Smith is the head of the Disaster Reconstruction Authority. We spoke with her while touring Great Abaco Island by bus earlier this month. What kind of wherewithal are you hearing from the government here in the Bahamas regarding the public investment, the ability to publicly invest that it has after the storm? Well, obviously, um, I know from a Ministry of Finance point of view in the government, obviously there's probably going to be borrowing that needs to take place. That's one aspect of it. Um, we enjoying a lot of support from um, organizations and people and companies that operate in the Bahamas in terms of donations. We got to look at all these funding mixtures. And then, of course, you know, you still have people who want to be funding partners directly with the authority. Um, so it's a lot going on. And I guess with the help of God and everybody else, we'll get there. There's a tough cycle, I imagine, that you're aware of and want to protect against to avoid, which is the cycle of a downturn or any kind of plateau in tourism affecting revenues into the central government here in the Bahamas, which would affect the ability to borrow and raise funds 
for the recovery. Right. And so, obviously, we're watching that very closely. I know that the Ministry of Tourism is is really evaluating its product, evaluating the messaging that we need to continue to put out to the public in ter terms of the destination. Um, so it's it's a lot of hard work. I mean the most important job that everybody is doing in the country. You could be the Minister of Finance, you could be the Minister of Tourism, you could be the Labor Minister. But the biggest job in this country right now that everybody is doing is how do we uh, sustain our economy, grow the economy, build back better and rebuild this country. That's the only job everybody has. I don't care what their title is. Let me ask you about the role of, of South Florida in this effort. Uh, what has been the support? What would you like it to be? Um, what does it need to be? to meet your timelines and your expectations. We've already been saying to our supporters and, and our donors that really building supplies is what's necessary. And uh, so we'd like to see more building supplies and less of the relief food because people are on a good footing with food and, and those kinds of things. And so uh, what, what does that mean exactly? For fewer canned goods and more? Um, I think we're at the point, I, I think I've heard Bahamans say, oh, I'm just tired of tuna and corned beef. I've had a lot of that. Um, I, I think the reality is as we shift to rebuilding, we, we need rebuilding supplies. Yeah. Good afternoon. Sikorana speaking. Some of those supplies will come through a small warehouse near Port Everglades in Fort Lauderdale. Secor Island Lines operates cargo ships between South Florida and the Caribbean, including Grand Bahama and Abaco Island, where Dorian did the worst damage. Before the storm, the company would get about 600 phone calls a week. After the storm, that jumped to over 2,000 calls a week as family, friends, and companies looked for ways to get supplies to the islands. The demand increased so much, Secor's employee of the year last year was its receptionist, Anna who answered many of those phone calls. One of the things she's explained to me is a lot of the calls are actually going through the emotional um, moments with the potential customer on what's occurred and what they're trying to do to start the rebuild. So a lot of the calls are more involved than under a regular business environment. That's Secor Island Line CEO Dan Thorogood. The phone was ringing. People were coming through the front office door regularly when we visited one afternoon in mid-December. The warehouse was filled with all kinds of goods, some ready to be shipped throughout the Caribbean for Christmas and New Year's, but a lot also destined to begin helping the rebuilding effort in the northern Bahamas. Pallet of insulation over here. You've got a, uh, several washers and dryer sets yeah. over so these here. This pipe's going to Freeport, for example. So this, this, all this is going to Freeport. This is Secor Island Line's President Charles Giddens. Um, Freeport, all that's all that's building materials going to Freeport. Yeah, it looks like there's tile. Yeah. And other uh, big rubber tubs there. Yeah. So yeah, if you look around Spanish Wells, I mean, we've got everybody in here, in some form or fashion. And now you see a lot of rebuilding. So I would tell you that a quarter of outside in the yard is building materials for Freeport and Marsh Harbor. These two destinations are important to Secord's business. They represent about 20% of its revenues, according to CEO Dan Thorogood. We consider ourselves a part of the Bahamian um, community and a lifeline uh, that links South Florida to that community in the Bahamas. And actually what I've, what I've seen in the weeks and months after the storm is actually how closely linked we are, those of us in Palm Beach, 
in, in, in Broward County and in, and in Miami-Dade to the islands and, and, and particularly uh, to the northwestern Bahamas that are so accessible for those of us that like boating or um, uh, getting away from uh, the metropolis that is South Florida. In the weeks after the storm, Thorogood says Seacor cut its cargo shipping rates to the northern Bahamas to break even. In addition to the massive challenge of working around damaged ports, the storm also took out the financial infrastructure, especially on Abaco Island. Through December, Seacor required any shipment to Marsh Harbor to be paid for in advance before it left its dock in Fort Lauderdale. As power has been restored slowly and banks reopen, Seacor has returned to shipping to Marsh Harbor on credit. Still to come, welcoming family from the northern Bahamas to South Florida. It was um, difficult at first because with the house full with children and, you know, that meant more money spending. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Life rarely moves in a straight line. It certainly hasn't for David and Nancy Fry from Plantation. The two first met growing up in Weston. After college, they got jobs and got married. Nancy was working in the arts. David began teaching and then started law school when they found out they were expecting their first child. The game of life for us was kind of more like shoots and ladders. Not, it wasn't point A to point B. Hear their journey and their story of money and the price of life coming up a little later on in this program. You can hear all of our financial statement stories by going to wlrn.org slash financial dash statements. That's wlrn.org slash financial dash statements. And if you'd like to share your story with us, please email us sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. Again, our email address is sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. After Hurricane Dorian, South Florida families with relatives in the Bahamas opened their doors to loved ones who needed a place to stay. Almost 30,000 people lost their homes or jobs or were at least temporarily out of their homes because of the storm, according to the Inter-American Development Bank. About 9,000 homes on Grand Bahama and Abaco suffered some kind of damage. Most of that was on Great Abaco Island. The rebuilding effort can take years. But life doesn't wait for the debris to be cleared away, plans to be made, and building materials to be bought. WLRN's Nadege Green introduces us to a grandma in South Florida who's now raising her three teenage sons from the Bahamas. Patricia Russell Duncombe moved to Delray Beach from Freeport, Bahamas about a year ago. She left behind her adult children and grandchildren with plans to visit them often. When Hurricane Dorian hit, her son and her daughter called to say they were okay, but their homes were in low-lying areas that sustained a lot of damage. Their house, my two of the first grandsons, their house was filled with water. They had like four feet of water in their house. And... It's a, it was a good thing that their, their grandmother lived next door to them in a two-story house. So they were able to go, run across by their grandmother, and run upstairs because the water had already reached almost to the top of the stairs. As soon as people could get off Grand Bahama after Dorian hit, Duncombe told her son and daughter to send their kids, 
her grandchildren, to her in Delray Beach. The Grand Celebration cruise ship provided free evacuation from the Bahamas for days after the storm. Her grandsons got on that ship. Now, Duncombe shares the two-bedroom home she rents with her husband with three teenagers. We had to get to learn how to live with one another, you know? And those big boys, they always strapping and, you know, they always kidding around and stuff. But all in all, it's worked out well so far. Duncombe is like many other families, mostly in Broward and Palm Beach counties, who took in family members from the Bahamas after the hurricane. Some came for a short time and have already returned to the Bahamas. Many others have stayed. Duncombe says she's happy to have her grandsons with her and safe. But taking care of three young people and providing for them isn't easy in a single-income household. It was um, difficult at first because with the house full of children and, you know, that meant more money spending. She doesn't work, and her husband is a truck driver. She says her community has stepped in to help in ways she never imagined. Her former pastor at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church still visits the boys. She still comes when she's ready. She comes and she brings them the love cereal. So she comes and she brings them boxes and boxes of cereal. And a free pop-up shop that was opened in Wellington for Bahamian evacuees was godsend, she says. They only came with a little backpack or something with some clothes in it. They didn't know how bad it was until after the fact. So we were able to get clothing free, food, items free. And the people here was very, very nice, very nice about it. You know, they went out their way to help us. Hundreds of school-aged children who came to South Florida after the storm enrolled in local schools, like Duncombe's grandsons, as they wait for their loved ones in the Bahamas to piece their lives back together. My house is like, the roof is gone, the walls is gone. Uh, a lot of stuff is gone. Trainaz Rigby is one of Duncombe's grandsons. They're all enrolled at Atlantic Community High in Delray Beach. He's 14 years old. My mother, she was telling me, y'all better behave when y'all go inside the United States of America. She said she's getting the house fixed. When I spoke to Trey Nas, he and his brother had just gotten home from school. They put their book bags down and immediately went into the kitchen to look for snacks. Trayvon is 15 years old. He's a bit shy. He says he's still getting used to the newness. I get in a new school better, getting to know my teachers, doing good in school. It's been more than four months since they arrived at their grandmother's, and since the life they knew in Grand Bahama was destroyed. This is Trey Nas, the 14-year-old. I miss playing with my friends. I miss being with my family, like most of my family. Still, he says it's always been a dream to come to the U.S., just not under these circumstances. Because I always don't want to go to the United States of America to play ball. Trainaz loves sports. I play basketball. I play every sport. Duncombe, Trainaz's grandma, says she's not sure how long it'll take for her grandson's parents to rebuild their lives in the Bahamas. Jobs are slow right now, and rebuilding material on the island is very expensive. They're trying. They're really trying to get everything back together. She says she'll keep her grandsons with her in Delray Beach for as long as they need. That was WLRN's Nadej Green reporting. Still to come, financial statements, stories of money and the price of life in South Florida. The game of life for us was kind of 
more like chutes and ladders. Not, it wasn't point A to point B. That's still to come. 